I'm an optimistic person living in a failed world. I mean, so what does that mean? I am optimistic that human beings can develop empathy on our way out as a civilization. I'm optimistic that there will be learning before mass death. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, we have Douglas Rushkoff, who was actually one of our first guests ever on the show. If you happen to miss that episode or if you're not familiar with Douglas, then let me tell you, you are in for quite the treat. Douglas is a no-bullshit media theorist who is undeniably one of the most influential thinkers who has been helping to steer digital culture really ever since the beginning. Now, we touch on many topics in this episode, but without a doubt, the biggest focus is on how capitalism and digital culture are negatively impacting the ways in which we interact with one another and how we build our communities. We also briefly touch on other topics like basic income, NFTs and cryptocurrency, and climate change. So there's a lot of great discussion here across a nice breadth that is all, I think, highly relevant to anyone who frankly is a human. Now, with all that being said, let's go ahead and get into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Douglas Rushkoff. Recording in progress. She's not real. She sounds very computery, actually, more so than Siri. It's always a woman, too, isn't it? Makes us less mad. Yeah, calms us down. Speaking of uh, of, of women, like we, can, we were talking about Mother Earth right before we hit <laughs> record and the relationship yeah, with the planet. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we both have people we're caring for in our lives, you know, who, who are going through stuff. And um, it, it makes me think of the the you know, the husbandry of human beings to the planet. You know, I mean, we're both responsible for what happened to this planet, but, you know, we're, we, I, I always felt like our role as a species is stewardship. You know, we, if we are in some ways more conscious or independently conscious, we don't think of ourselves as part of mother nature system so much as, part of it and apart and apart from it at the same time um that the only possible reason for that in a a a pro-natural way of understanding that is that oh so we're here to uh, bring consciousness to nature we can make nature less cruel we can uh mitigate some some things we can help steward nature you know, uh, uh, you know, just as a, a Aboriginal people can leave the land better, well, by yeah. certain judgment, leave the or, land better than they got to it. Or at least maintain harmony. You know, we don't have right. to be necessarily the caretakers as much as we can just stop causing all of the problems. I mean, yeah, I've been honestly, I don't know what it has been. Maybe it's just been this year because we've had the forest fires um, so much here in Portland. We had three days of 115 degree weather um, in spite of having a previous world record, a lifetime record of 105 
you know, so we shattered our record and then did it consecutive days. And I don't know if it's that or COVID and the, the amount of time I have to reflect or what, but climate change has really started to get under my skin. Uh, finally, <laughs> you know, I think I've been thinking about it for a long time, but this past year, I'm just like, shit, we, this really is serious. And then you had your flooding in New York. Yeah, like, right. It went from a thing we were worried about to now we are like over the the lip of the event horizon you know we're over the ball over the edge of the ball so now it's not something that we're going to avoid now climate change is something that we have to deal with it's a bit like the person who um i remember my dad was always scared about cancer he always called it the big c you know and every time you go to the doctor you could find out and then one day he comes home got it it happened you know so it was like this this hypothetical for him, I guess there was some sense of inevitability for him, which maybe could have brought it on, who knows, you know, some some superstitious idea of some something. But, uh, you know, that whole generation, cancer was like the big thing. Now, as I think people worry about cancer, it's more like, oh, I'm going to have to do chemo, not I'm going to die, right? It's yeah. like, oh, that's going to be horrible. Um, but climate change was kind of like our big C. It's like, oh, this is going to come. It wasn't the nukes for our generation so much. I mean, I never really believed the Russians would nuke us. It just seemed dumb, at least on purpose, you know, accidentally, like they spilled coffee on the switch <laughs> or something. I could see that happening. But, you know, no one's like, I mean, I get them so optimistic. This reveals who I am right right here. I'm, I can't believe anybody would actually push the button. I mean, Are you, you're optimistic. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I'm, I wouldn't necessarily pin that on you. I'm an optimistic person living in a failed world. I mean, so what does that mean? I am optimistic that human beings can develop empathy on our way out as a civilization. I'm optimistic that there will be learning before mass death. I'm optimistic there will be opportunities for people to engage compassionately with the hundreds of millions of refugees, you know, uh, fleeing one climate crisis or the other. So yeah, that's optimism of a sort. <laughs> of a sort. Well, you know, there's, optimism. there's the Greek idea, you know, the obstacle is the way or um, in filth it shall be found. And that idea of like through struggle and pain, we become better versions of ourselves. Do you think we're kind of playing out that generational story where like soft lives make soft men and soft men create harsh worlds? And, you know, are we are we going through that route of like we were too soft for the last 20 or 30 years and now maybe we'll have to learn that empathy because things are going to be forced upon us. I, I hope that that's what's going on. I mean, it's there, there, there should have been a whole lot easier, less painful, destructive and murderous ways to get here. I, I find it, I find it hard to buy that it's like God's plan that we have to sin in order to be saved or that we have to go through some horrible thing in order to have the good thing. I, I, I have no problem with people just being good from the beginning and <laughs> spontaneously good, yeah. spontaneously good. <laughs> yeah. I got no problem with that or to use for people to use less, you know, kind of categorically catastrophic phenomenon. Like, can't we learn from, oh, look, little Johnny, you just burned a bunch of worms. You know, 
how does that really make you feel when you saw them writhing around in pain like that? Oh, mommy, I hurt the worms. You're right. You hurt the worm. Let that be as bad as it gets, you know? And that's bad, you know, the Johnny Boiled Worms. But he should have learned, you know, he should, we shouldn't have to go to, oh, now, you know, we're going to have a zillion people die of COVID or we're going to send, you know, Rwandan children into mines to get our rare earth metals or, you know, we don't really need to go there to, to become this just good brings people. To mind, do you think that we've like kind of normalized um, or become too comfortable with or familiar with things that should have either terrified us or fascinated us. Like I think now is like growing. I, I often tell people like if you came across a bear or a cheetah or an owl or like any thing that's an animal in nature and you hadn't grown up with the access to zoos or cartoons or TV shows where you'd saw those things regularly, you would both be, you would be awestruck. Literally you would have the sense of wonder and fear and just like amazement that this alien exists on the same planet as you. But because we see it from birth, it kind of loses its grandeur, you know, and I feel like maybe in the same way, a kid watching a, a worm writhe on the ground might see pain on TV so much that when it actually happens in real life, it doesn't really think much of it. It's funny. I was reading, uh, I was just reading Marx and he was saying, uh, he's dead now, but, but he, 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 his literature lives on. And he was saying that, um, the the means of production comes before religion not after in other words it's not like we have a certain religion and then we work in a certain way you know because of it he's saying that you know when people all worked with each other and contributed like in a family we got nature religions because everything was connected and sort of holistic then when we were using a market and all separated and working for the man, that's when we get like Christianity because that's like abstract individuals competing against each other for God's love. Who's like the boss or the money and the winning. And I feel like, I think he's right that whatever you're born into seems normal until you actively denaturalize it. So if we live in a world, you were raised in a world where all the stuff you use is just plastic stuff made by slaves in China that you never see. It's like, oh, well, sure. If I think about it, that sucks, but that's just how things are. What, what you want me to shut down Walmart, you know, or you're like, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're the vegan arguments are really strong. You know, there's that moment when the kid realizes that thing we call chicken is a chicken and you go, whoa, we're killing the chickens. We're killing, but then you, ah, you got to eat. You know, mm -hmm. got to eat, but it's like, well, wait a minute. No, you got to eat in a modern industrial society where you all kill chickens and ship them across the world. Yeah, that, but do you, do you have to eat that? Oh, you got to get a job. Well, do you have to get a job? When were jobs invented? You know, so much of my work has always been about that using the media theorists ability to denaturalize things and say, oh no, no, no. That's just the television environment doing that to do that to everything. Say, no, you don't, you don't need a job. You need to you contribute to your community and you know you've got to have some use value in what you're doing but that doesn't necessarily mean a job who invented jobs and why so i look at that you know this sort of cruelty to the planet in that sort of way we get born into a certain level of cruelty oh yeah you got a car well it's exhaust yeah we try to make it better you know do you need the car i mean we're going to obviously talk <clears throat> i think a lot about probably capitalism and technology and the way it plays a role in that in this conversation but maybe to start 
with since you mentioned it like how do we find a crack in that reality tunnel when you are encultured in a system that does show you that as the only truth and you are stuck in that you know robert anton wilson reality tunnel how do you how do you shatter that you know and and walk through to the other side one is to actually engage with the other you know the others you like at first um, cause you'll always have little differences with them, but then the other, the, the different ones, you know, when we're cleaning up our town here from the, the recent floods, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, uh, side to side with, you know, volunteer firemen who voted for Trump and think COVID's not real or you know, climate change isn't happening, but we're working together and, you know, uh, not that we have to kumbaya and all love each other before anything happens. Um, but boy, seeing, engaging with someone else's reality tunnel in an open way, um, helps you see the sense of it. You know, I spent almost the whole Trump administration trying to listen to him, um, often stoned trying to listen to him because that kind of reduced some of my critical filters and let me kind of go on his trip with him um i understand what he was saying to his people i understand the idea of my family has been living on this coal for six generations what we do is we go into tunnels and dig out coal for money hillary clinton wants us to get re-educated so we can make solar panels for some friggin international al gore investment strategy energy transition bullshit thing. What is that? You know, you're, you're disempowering me. I mean, Marx wouldn't want, Marx would rather have you digging the coal out of your backyard than, you know, making some giant industrial renewable energy device. So, you know, I get it, you know, I, I, and when you get that, you realize, oh, right. I'm in a reality tunnel too. Mine is, mine is limited as well. Do you feel like the um, the digital nature of technology is really playing a big part in forcing that? Because as I think about previously, we we would be in the streets with people who were different than us, you know, handling things like floods. And now we are so segregated into these on off type of groups where you're either in a group or you're not or you get the news or you don't. And you're part of the in group or you're not. You're a progressive or you're not. And it's feels like maybe that digital in the same way like technologies often become metaphors for a generation it feels like the the digital technology the digital concept has become now our thought process and it's become very black and white and that's created a lot of this polarization that it feels like we're going through right now yeah well digital media environment did did a lot it certainly does that it gives you that illusion of choice that, oh, now I can choose to be with just these people and just those ones and get ever more granular and then ever less tolerant of those who aren't in your uh, affinity group. You know, and that was all about marketing and prediction and all, but it's had other effects on our taste. And, you know, back to Marx, it's, it's commodity fetishism, you know, run amok where everything is its exchange values and it's awful. Um, the other thing I, I was thinking about is digital, for better and for worse, digital as an environment makes people feel more responsible. 
It's like as as individuals, you know, where television was so much about watching. I always feel like digital people, they want to know what should they do? What do I do? You know, how how do I fix the world? What do I build an app or do a thing or what? What You know, it's more interactive and, and active. And the weird thing about responsibility is it, it's kind of gone. It's bifurcated into two somewhat unhealthy styles where on the on the left responsibility and this individual responsibility has taken the form of like accountability for your past language so if i used an sat word 10 years ago that now we decide sounds like a racist word i'm actually in trouble for that you know that that any kind of progress depends on condemning whatever it is we're doing now for not being, you know, it's it, that that moving goalpost and cancellation thing, as if that's the first response to everyone who's using unenlightened language or or doing um, doing hurtful, hurtful unconscious things. It's like is that, you know, but so there's that on the one side is that sort of a cancel responsibility accountability thing which is healthy to an extent but then goes nuts and then the other side is that kind of the right wing personal liberty um they use words like sovereignty you know and i own my data and you know you don't even own your body much less you know what i mean you don't own it's like the world is my ip my uh, you know it's like God, I get it. They want liberty. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to get a vaccine. Fuck you. It's me. You know, I have personal liberty. My freedom is my liberty. And like, ah, and that's the other extreme. But both of them have to do with uh, something that's ultimately healthy compared to the, you know, the, the, the soporific of television. You know, this, all right, here I am. I'm rising to the occasion in some way or we demand that you write, you know, that this individual accountability is very digital and not necessarily bad if we take it for what, what, for what, what it offers in terms of value and, and, and rising to the occasion of, of humanity's great need. Yeah, do you think that's just because we get that sense of effectance in the world when we can use like an interface or program something and kind of be our little gods inside these operating systems? In part, yeah, you know, I can have my own Twitter account, my own brand, my own ID, my own little place on the on the net, my homestead on the digital frontier. You know, there's that that you know the the homepage. You know, I wrote this piece recently about how um, I used to call um, internet people. I used to call us digital nomads. That was one of these terms I came up with back when because I, I liked it because I considered internet people like the new Jews, you know, we're kind of wandering in the desert and going from place to place. And there was no sense of place on the internet. It was just all these links. And then along came the web and the home page. And that to me was sort of like when human beings went from being Bedouins to being sedentary, we got this thing. And then we built cities like Facebook or, 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 or uh, Tumblr, I guess was a city of a sort too with various different degrees of centralization. But I, uh, I, I, I kind of like the, uh, personally, the old text only placelessness of the early net. Makes me think we're all like Zeus on a mountain shouting our commandments at other mountains. 
of people on right. other mountains. Instead of the Israelites in the desert just following a cloud. You know? <laughs> Makes me think of uh, Bo Burnham's Inside where he does that skit where he's like, did anyone ever stop to ask if maybe it wasn't a good idea to have everybody share every thought they have in every moment? <laughs> but we did. Many of us stopped and said, wait a minute, this is not, don't go there. I mean, so much of this, we, 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 we talked about Marx a few times here, and so much of it does feel like it is inevitably tied to the attention economy and the incentives and capitalism in general. Um, what are your thoughts on things like cryptocurrencies and stuff to solve that? Because in some ways, I I look at so many friends of mine who are involved in cryptocurrencies, and I'm like, yeah, what you're telling me in principle sounds cool, but so far I'm seeing get-rich-quick schemes and like people just being like, if I launch a coin, I can make a few million dollars and never do anything else. And I'm waiting for that like killer app that says like, hey, we can actually revolutionize society. Have you seen that killer app or that? No, I, I haven't. And I've been writing a lot about that. I mean, people are acting like NFTs are the killer app. Oh, because look, artists are getting rich. But the, NF, uh, NFTs are the blockchain like, you know, the Keith Haring painting in the lobby of a bank. You know, just because they put an artist picture in the lobby and invest in art, they've got art in their in their vault somewhere too. Just because they turn art into an asset class doesn't make banking good, right? That's almost their the the patina of oh, so you're the social good that your bank does is it gave you know Frank Stella ten million dollars for a piece of op art, you know ah doesn't quite work. So no. It hasn't. It's it, blockchain is still a solution looking for a problem, looking for the problem it solves. Because proof of work, I mean, think of what Marx would make of that term, proof of work. Mm. You know, the the kid, right? The 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 African kid going into the cave to get the molybdenum for the server that's going to mine someone's Bitcoin. Does he really need to prove his work? I think he's proven it. He's proven the work. Um, so it doesn't, it, proof of work is a religion where instead of burning like a goat at the temple to prove your love of God, we burn fuel to prove our love and devotion to this coin, right? We burn. That's how you prove your love, right? To prove your, your faith, your, your belief. Our planet is burning. Look at us. We can burn the, as much as the entire nation of Argentina as a way of showing our love for this thing. And I know there's a lot of arguments that it's okay to burn energy or it's renewable energy or this or that or the other, but even then this is energy that other people could use for better stuff. You know, right. it, it really would be, I and mean, there'd be less forest fires and, and on all that. So there, there's, there's that, or there's now proof of stake. An idea of proof of stake is that if you have a lot of the coin, you should, you're going to care that the coin be, uh, administrated properly. So basically it's saying the rich should decide what transactions matter because they're the ones with the most money. But the whole thing is really just taking banking and saying, okay, let's just have a new population of bankers. So this, the nerds become the bankers, the programmers become the bankers, and they still take, it looks to me like they're taking as much out of the system for authorizing or authenticating our transactions as regular banks did for authenticating our transactions, only they're doing it in what looks to be a, uh, 
a less uh, environmentally friendly way, even if it's apparently decentralized. The reason why I don't think it's centralized, uh, decentralized is because there's a very few people getting very, very rich on that. So, um, so no, I don't, I don't see it yet. I do think the blockchain could work, but I see no reason for blockchains to be run in a giant decentralized Tor network. I think you can just put a blockchain, have 10 computers sitting at a trusted authority and they'll calculate the blockchain. Give them a penny per transaction if you want for you know taking responsibility for it. But the idea that we need to substitute for trust with technology doesn't make sense to me. I would rather engender trust with technology you know, rather than substitute for it in yet another alienating way. And that's the big crux in a lot of ways, right, is this idea that rather than create sh shift the narrative and retool the the, in the infrastructure, we just try to inject a technological solution that really just becomes another vehicle of the previous infrastructure. Like we're not right. we're not creating. I think you mentioned somewhere before that we had a chance with technology. Maybe we still do to have like a fourth revolution. But really what we're doing is we're having the fourth industrial revolution. We're, we're redoing the same thing the industrial revolution did in a digital format rather than creating an entirely new paradigm. Yeah, this is what I was talking about in Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. I go through sort of the stages of, of production, you know, from an artisan thing to an industrialism thing with the assembly line. And now we get digital technology, but we're doing just digital industrialism. We're doing industrialism on digital steroids. So it's more extractive and more alienating rather than doing what I was hoping for, which is digital distributism. You know, so how do we, how do we, uh, uh, you know, distributism means that, that the workers own the means of production. They own their own tools again. How do we develop co-ops and, uh, you know, and more local solutions, you know, smaller scaled, businesses rather than looking what the internet has done or digital has done to people when they think about even social justice solutions they always ask well yeah but how can that scale how can it scale i'm like it doesn't have to scale scale is the problem not the solution you know so don't scale your fucking local currency make your local currency local and then have ripples right just have a bunch of ripples throughout the world that kind of are the change rather than one massively scaled system right you're kind of an uh, anarcho-syndicalist, aren't you? I am, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what it was. That's a funny story. I was doing a, um, a talk for a bunch of like uh, bankers and economists in Germany. And uh, it's funny, after I was done, I mean, I deconstructed the corporation and talked about, you know, what, how the corporation and central currency and all that started. Um, the first guy got up and he says, uh, Mr. Rushkoff, um, what is your background? So I looked behind me and I said, blue, you know, because it was this blue curtain. And then the next guy got up and said, you, you, my friend, you are, uh, uh, you know, what you're saying, you're an anarcho-syndicalist in this horrible accusatory way. He says, is that what you're saying? And I said, I don't know. Can you hum a few bars? And, you know, because I didn't know. But I went back to the hotel. I went on Wikipedia and I looked at anarcho-syndicalism and I was like, 
oh, actually, that sounds pretty good. It sounds good. It's like all these kibbutzes, you know, it's like everything is a kibbutz or a little commune or a little cottage industry, but they're all networked together. So they can all trade with each other and you can model and you can see something good that another one is doing. You go, oh, look what they're doing over in, you know, in, in that in that kibbutz over in, in Palestine. Oh, let's go do that over in Norway. That's a good idea. And you don't have to pay them or anything. It's just they just shared the idea. There's no reason, reason for them to make money off us doing that because it's not about, it's not a universe of IP. It's a universe of, you know, sharing the fruits of our production. Yeah. What do you think about things like basic income or whatnot to like move us in that direction? Do you think that's going to help or is it just kind of the same feeding money to a system that's just going to send it to the top? I used to like basic income and I like when I look at the studies, how it kind of works that if you start to have, and it's true, if you have stuff in surplus, then just give people money so they can have it. You know, just give people the stuff, right? So if we have, we still grow more food in the US than we need, so we burn food every week, right? US Department of Agriculture burns food. We got houses that are, that are from bankrupt people going into foreclosure. We tear down the house rather than let it bring down market values in its in its neighborhood, even though there's homeless people and and starving people. So universal basic income seems to be a smart way to begin to at least distribute some of the spoils of capitalism to those who actually need it. The problem is, it on the one hand, uh, people are afraid, then, well, why am I going to compete if I can I just have stuff for free? And my answer is, well, because you don't need to compete. We have enough stuff. Just just work, you know, for find another reason to work. Um, and, and the, the other problem with it really though, is that like you say, all the money ends up going eventually trickling up or down to the same people. So Uber is upset that people won't have enough money to take Uber cars. So they want there to be universal basic income one so that people can still afford to do Uber you know, so they'll get the money and two, so they can pay their workers less than they need to live. Right. So it's like, so what happens is the government then just prints more money and that money ends up in the hands of the same few and the division of wealth gets bigger rather than, than less, which is why, you know, what Marina Gorbis at Institute for the Future talks a lot about is universal basic assets. That the problem is not your income, it's what do you own? What does the family have? Do I have land? Do I have real estate? You know, start distributing the real stuff. And that's, you know, that's a little bit different. That goes against consumerism, though, at that point, right? Not a lot of people are going to be in favor of that because all the businesses want you to buy all of their products rather than one product shared between 50 people. Right. If I have, I like Joe has the lawnmower on our block. Mm-hmm. And we all share that. That's the worst thing for the lawnmower company, especially if Joe, if we know how to fix the lawnmower, you know, then, oh my God, what if people are buying and selling less stuff, you know, because they can share and have fun and enjoy each other socially. Well, if they buy and sell less stuff, then the environment's going to be less taxed. Oh no. Um, then what? Then we're not going to have to sell people, you know, all these solar panels and other things. You know, it's like, Winding down, as Nate Hoggins would say, you know, less energy consumption, less is the only way to do it. And, and less is so much easier than more. Less is so much more fun than more. You get to have an excuse to ring Joe's doorbell. Hey, can I use the lawnmower today? Sure. 
It's out around back. Garage is unlocked, you know? And why is the garage unlocked? So that you can borrow it without asking me. It's all right, just go, you know? You know, whatever, you know, that imaginary community. it doesn't seem that difficult and he could be a Trumpy <laughs> and still lend me the lawnmower. Cause that's the thing. The Trumpies lend you stuff. They come over, they, and not to generalize, but when something's wrong, my Trumpy neighbors tend to be there with their sleeves rolled up before my Bernie neighbors. You know, my Bernie neighbors kind of want to do a GoFundMe or something for me. You know what I they mean? Wanna, they want to like... tweet about it. <laughs> they have to make sure I gave Douglas this thing. I just want everyone to know that I gave Douglas this thing and I'm a really good supporter of my they community. They want the social proof. Yeah. Nothing against Bernie people. I'm a Bernie person. I'm just saying my, I'm just criticizing Bernie people because that's my side. Same. Of the same so-called thing. So I'm freer with my self-critique. Um, I'm just saying, you know, again, people that you think you don't like will surprise you when you realize the things that you generally don't get along with. Most of the stuff you don't get along with about them is shit they've been programmed with, like, you know, Nazism or whatever. Wouldn't it be so crazy what technology could do if we weren't so xenophobic? (laughs) Like imagine, well, that was, you know, fools like me in the late eighties and early nineties saw the internet come around and we thought, Oh my God, the internet's going to let us undo all the terrible stuff the television did, you know? And I used to write, I I remember I used to use this story a lot about, you know, some 50 year old businessman or academic or someone I knew who had gotten in this long conversation with someone he didn't know in Japan about the relationship of um, Japanese film to American film and manga and Disney. And it's like, after like weeks of discussions on Usenet, he found out that this smart person on the other side was like an 11 year old Japanese boy who he never would have given the time of day to. And he went, oh my God, people are way more interesting than I realized, you know, and all my prejudices and this and that and the other. is nice, you know, or to, or to, to, you know, there was a lot of um, spoofing of identity in the early internet and it wasn't done maliciously, like, like fake deep fakes or whatever today. It was more so that you can engage with the community and kind of incognito way. And you learn so much, like I'm going to be a, uh, a college female in this discussion. And then to see, wow, you know, people do not uh, here. It's as if my text is softer. You know, maybe it's not true today, but, but I think it probably is, but it was as if I wasn't loud enough. And then if I was loud, then people are thinking I'm being screechy or something. Cause it's coming from someone, you know, named Danielle instead of Douglas. It's like, wow, yeah. people really do listen to women differently. And to have that experience as a, you know, a 29 year old man on the early internet was more profound than reading Judith Butler or something, you know? Yeah, it seems like there was potential for more social exploration. And now I feel like that's kind of off limits a little bit. Like if you because I I feel like often with my politics where I kind of sit now, I'm in the middle of two warring armies and I'm taking shots from both sides. And I ask myself, why do I do this? But it's like I want to experiment. I want to play with the thoughts that come from every direction because it's all interesting to me. And, you know, I live in Portland, which is super progressive, but I was raised in Trump country in the middle of Ohio, like 
and it's interesting. Both sides are people. You know? Right. Right. And, you know, confused in different ways. But for me, uh, I don't know, it could be a sign of age or whatever, but you know, it's not really true. I was going to say I feel impotent in the culture wars, but I don't know that I am. You know, I feel like I have managed to change minds. You know, I mean, I, I, I may never be credited for it, right? But I know that the team humanity effort that came out of, you know, the social dilemma and, and Center for Humane Technology, I know team humanity is based on team human, right? I, I, I feel good about that rather than bad because to me when i see that and i see my language all over their website or coming out of their mouths in movies i don't feel stolen from as much as listened to you know tech bros they can't credit you that's just not in their nature right they need to feel like they that they came up with it but if i could write things and make shows and write articles that are good enough to go into someone's brain or ears or eyes and have them want to embody them, want to take ownership of them in the good sense, I'll let them have ownership of it in the bad sense, in the monetary sense. So uh, I have had influence, but I feel like um, I mean, what I'm writing about right these days is that you know 99% of us don't need to be on these networks making these arguments. We need to be in our communities, taking care of people, not tweeting, not Instagramming. It really, um, we don't do any good. 99% of us really don't need to understand Afghan withdrawal policies. You know, or, or what's his face? Uh, Biden, he may have done it wrong, may have done it right, may have been at the wrong time, may, whatever. Certainly watching Fox and Rachel Maddow and this one and that one is going to be a whole big, long thing for me to figure out what was done right, what was done wrong, and then to weigh in on it on Twitter. And why should I be weighing? I'm not the expert in that. Shut the fuck up, right? I should shut the fuck up. If I want to spend my time learning about that, I can, but... I'm not going to have any, no one cares what I think about that. Certainly not in Washington, D.C. or anything. It's like learning about current events enough, you know, to watch the 630 news, get a half hour of what's going on in the world. It's good to know what's going on in the world, but not so that I can weigh in and make a micro vote in some instant democracy nightmare of Twitter. No, shut up. Shut up. I know what's going on in my neighborhood. I can see the water overflow. We've got to deal with this. We, we're, our houses are getting flooded. Our kids are not getting schooled properly. Our, our old people are not getting cared for. Let's do that. Yeah. And it feels like a, just a moment to moment distraction, right? Once the Afghan thing is over, there's going to be another thing. And you're just going to keep jumping between things that you really have no effect in sin, you know, that you don't have any real power to shape. Uh, you know, arguably, aside from maybe one vote every four years. Right. And with that vote, I mean, there's a more than enough information I'm going to get to make that vote. I'm not worried about that. You know, there seems to be a bit of a, a lot of that that kind of comes down to like the idea of narcissism or like this uh, cults of personality kind of scenario that we have. Um, 
I feel like that's driving a lot of the the other issues as well, right? We have the system that's creating or cultivating that. And then people go out in the world and they want the more money. They want to be able to post more pictures about them on travel. And in politics, that same idea gets into it. So in a very long-winded way, I guess my question is, how do we kind of bring back that sense of like empathy and community-centric care into this system that's very heavily leaning towards narcissism and having a cult-like following? We can use the resulting alienation, despair, and mental illness to encourage something better than downloading a wellness app. You know, we can start promoting uh, social cohesion and community engagement as cures for anxiety and depression and alienation and loneliness. And uh, it actually does work. I mean, it's it's not fake. This is not a, a bait and switch. It's real. You get healthier when you are working with other people and looking in their eyes and engaged with one another, you know, and you don't lose your liberty. Don't worry. You know, you can make friends with someone. You don't lose your liberty. I mean, you do to some extent, I guess, you know, if you really make friends with someone and they get injured or they get sick, right? Do you lose your liberty? Yeah, but I've got to believe you gain something else in the, in the process, you know, and yeah, it's harder and harder, you know, until you're friggin' mother Teresa or Desmond Tutu or somebody, you know, and most of us are not going to get there. We're not going to get to that place of true satisfaction of of, of the deepest satisfaction coming through service. But um, it's the only kind of satisfaction that fills that place. You know, it's that that's where the soul happens is you're, you're, Either you're celebrating just the joy of your own existence, just the joy of it, you know, kind of, you know, Aretha style, you know, of just like, oh, my God. Or you're uh, you're helping somebody, fighting for somebody, rescuing somebody. How do you think that COVID is impacting all of this stuff? Because there's a part of me that really thinks it's beautiful that we're getting remote work that's severing that tie to a a job that's kind of exploiting our time in a lot of ways. But then I have that huge concern that we're just isolating more, losing more human contact and, and maybe bringing our work just home more so that we're now just more efficiently working at home 24 seven, rather than having it just sequestered into a nine to five. Well, it's weird. Um, On the one hand, it did make people more connected to their families and neighbors because no one was going anywhere. So you did, you know, some people who probably never met their kids and stuff, you know, these kind of rich people who, who have servants and all now they're at home, you know, and they're actually meeting people in their family, which is, which is good. You know, I love all those little zooms where they show like, you know, Oh, there's the kid, you know, wandering in the baby's crawling or the people's cats, you know, over their face. And I love that stuff. Um, uh, I mean, the real cat, not the guy with yeah. the filter, which is also nice uh, for just for fun. Um, there's that. But the isolation, I mean, the isolation from our coworkers predated isolating technology. You know, we went 
to work or people went to work, but they were in separate offices. There was an illusion of a company, but they were all basically competing with targets and this and that. They were just as, as alienated as, as any factory worker. You know, their, their productive capabilities were not, they're not doing for each other. They're working for the company and buying and selling from, from other companies. So it was already there. I feel like, like Zoom, uh, uh, Zoom work has revealed the underlying disconnection. And if anything, I think it wants, it, it makes us want to see that if we do get together again, let's actually get together. You know, maybe we'll just go in two days a week, but really use those to be with each other rather than to ignore, ignore everyone else. Yeah, it's much harder to take for granted uh, social connection these days. Because we have so little of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and now, you know, when I do, you know, someone did this interview with me here this morning, you know, maskless in the office together, looking in each other's eyes. And it's almost um, it's like almost like the first time I had sex or something. It's like it's like almost a neural overload, a neural a neurosocial overload. Oh, my God, there's a body here. The eyes are wet. The head is three-dimensional, not two-dimensional. He's breathing. He has a smell. Um, there's these little hairs I can see on his face. That must be beard, right? They're individual. It's not just this thing. You know what I mean? They're individual. You have one too, but I wouldn't know it's individual hairs. This guy had individual hairs that composed his beard. And the fact that, so I'm sitting here trying to talk to this person and what my mind is saying is, oh, right. A beard is a bunch of hairs that means I've been away too long, right? I mean <laughs> but, but Douglas, we'll be able to give you that experience soon in the virtual world. Oh, you won't though. <laughs> you won't. You'll be able to imitate something. I'm not going in there. I'm not going in. I'm not. Be one because, of the holdouts. Yeah, because the real world is already pre-configured enough by corporate capitalism. There's so many different things in the world that I take for granted that are there because it's been arranged that way. Like everyone thinks, oh, I got to get a car. Why? Well, I got to get to work. Why do you need a car to get to work? Because GM lobbied to have your workplace and your home place put far apart enough from each other that the only way to get from one to the other is with a car. You don't need a car to work. They made you, you know? So there's so much we take for granted that, uh, uh, that, that they've put into this world, the virtual world. Damn. I mean, if I'm too critical of Facebook, whatever, I'm just not going to show up in the metaverse. They just won't be able to find me. They won't have to burn my books. It's just, oh, well, it's just not included. Just don't make digital copies of them. Yeah. So, I mean, what is your, what is your path forward these days to address these kind of things? You know, when you have, when I, when I, I'm, I'm like, I'm nodding along to so many things you're saying. And then I think, all right, how do we get the world to just shift? You know, there's so many people who are in these systems that it feels like there's just so much momentum against us. Like, do you have an approach that you've been taking or things that you've been thinking about lately that you feel are your best avenue to, to work on this problem? Well, I'm a writer. 
you know, I'm a writer. So I work on the problem through knowledge production by doing lots of research and lots of thinking, trying to be really thoughtful and then sharing my analysis of where we went wrong and how we might unwind that to get to somewhere better. Um, but I've done that for like 20 books, right? And I've been doing the, the where we went wrong and how we should do it better since like 99 with uh, this book, Coercion. And, and I was hinting at where we might go wrong even back before then in the first book, Siberia in 93, when I was, you know, celebrating the kind of Mondo 2000 style internet and warning about what'll happen if we move to a more wired magazine internet. And we went to the Wired Magazine internet, right? We went to the VC big business one. And um, I may have said it, you know, I've got another book coming out about the kind of the tech billionaires and what contributed to their, their you know, idea that winning means isolating, winning means escape. You know, where does that come from? You know, and look at the sort of the scientific and the capitalist and the technological roots of that. But, you know, and that might be a mic drop of a sort, or I might do a, a, a one last little manifesto that just says kind of go local, just go local, just forget everything, go local, but then go local myself and, and drop out, you know, drop off all this stuff and be available to people locally. And if people are emailing, you know, oh, I want your advice on this or that or the other, just have an autoresponder. I teach an open lecture at Queens College on Wednesday afternoons. You're welcome to come. I mean, and it's tricky because my job is a public job, mm -hmm. but, and I feel like most, most jobs are not public jobs, but at a certain point I have to go, well, it's not fair for me to tell everybody, don't be public. Just, just, don't worry about Twitter and Instagram and your following. Just love yourself and your neighbors and your family. Then I got to co go kind of do that myself as a way of. Do you think there's anything, I guess, wrong? Or can you understand the fact that people feel the need to use capital right now and use businesses as a way to leverage these forces? Like, is there some inevitable aspect of working in that direction that means we have to play inside the system and use VCs, whether we like it or not, or businesses and technology to to tilt us in that direction? When people really want to do well by doing good, the minute things get hard, the doing good gets postponed because they'll always say, well, look, if we're not doing well, we're not going to have the money and time and whatever it is to do good. And then they struggle so hard to do well and do so much damage in that doing well that it's kind of not worth it. If at best one in 20 startups succeed, then, and you're trying to do all social good startups, then even if the 20th one does somehow more good than bad, there's the other 19 of them that failed, that outweighed it. So, no, I don't think. I mean, yeah, you can do commerce, you can do stuff, you can make chairs, you can make food, you can provide for other people's needs in ways that also sustain you. That's fine. That's commerce. That's, but once you're rent seeking, once you're looking at 
profit over purpose, it's God, you know? Yeah, you're scaling scaling beyond the local at that point. Right. Because yeah. now we're going to succeed even bigger and better. Yeah. Douglas, I know we're starting to go over time here, man, so I want to respect that. But uh, any closing thoughts or, or things you'd like to talk about or share with people? Uh, we've got to we've got to learn to chill. We've got to learn to chill, you know, and it kind of goes back to the church of Bob, the subgenius, and getting slack. You know, slack was not just about being lazy. The more you take pleasure in slack, the less of a burden you are on the whole energy system and everything else the more happy you are just chilling with your buddies is uh the, the the you're doing a whole lot of good at this point by not doing bad you're doing good by using less stuff you're doing good by walking to your neighbor's house and sitting and having a good talk with them you're doing so much good um that and really that and, and that's as good as it gets that's as good i promise you that's as good as it gets. You know, you can go try to do the Tantra thing and, you know, take DMT and have crazy sex with your yogini or something. And maybe you'll get some peak, whatever. But trust me, the making eye contact with a friend or a lover or a family member, spending time with your grandma and walking her down the street and listening to stories about her youth. That's, that's as good as this gets. That's as good as this gets, you know, petting that person's little puppy that they're coming down. That's as good as it gets. And when you get that, you're like, oh, there's, you know, the real joy of life is super accessible to me. And even if the whole thing is coming down around our ears, even if the whole civilization is going to be gone in 20 years, the puppy, the old lady, the child, the spouse, they're still here and still available to you, you know, on the way down, the Titanic's going down, but the orchestra is playing. And that sound, that music is divine, yeah. right? The further into that music you can get, the, the, the less actually in this case, the, the uh, less likely the ship is to go down. I love it. I love it. Douglas, is there, is there anything you want to promote before we jump off or Let's promote the um, the the Post Carbon Institute. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about their? They're nice. They they after carbon, get it? Um, they're <laughs> nice. Uh, I thought I kind of met you some through them, or some of them know you. Um, what would I promote? Team Human. I got a podcast, Team Human, with conversations like this one. Um, and it's yeah, it's uh, uh every other week. Although I now do bonus content for paying subscribers, but great conversations that are really uh, more about conversation as jazz. They're about what comportment are we bringing to the way we engage with each other as the thing, more than the content. Don't listen to it for this or for that, right? Listen to it to listen to it for its own sake. And um, you wrote, oh, you go, oh, I get it. That's what being human is. So that's what we're trying to do is to model model being human. And audio works so much better for that than you know YouTube or something, because audio just, you know, put it on speakers, let it move your body. It's like, ah, oh, right. Sound. Douglas, <laughs> let's leave it there then, man. All I right. Will. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining me for this conversation. Thank you.